I just love to be rebuked. Said no one ever. Anybody in here goes, yeah, I, I, I think real fondly of being rebuked. Um, yeah, anytime someone's like sharply disproves of me, I'm just enjoy that. Uh, no, any, raise your hand, anybody? Only by you, Jack. Oh, oh, only by me. Well, it's coming. <laughs> That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> uh, man, um, it's a question. Like, think about that. No one, no one likes to be rebuked. Uh, think about your response when somebody rebukes you. Just in your head, think about it. Um, now, rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. When somebody calls you out on something, brings disapproval about you, 10 being like, you know, I had a very like, um, godly response. I had a, a gentle, rational, logical response being a 10, and a 1 being like, I lost it, right? Uh, I asked Jennifer this question about me today, and she said, you're a solid 3. Uh, <laughs> she actually didn't. She said, she said, most days you're under a 5, and then we kind of negotiated a solid three. Um, we just don't typically love rebuke. Uh, we don't like it when people bring up stuff against us. And when stuff is pointed out, um, it can be hard to receive sometimes. But there's this reality in Scripture. There's this truth that we see over and over in Scripture. And is that we should actually value rebuke. Um, we should want to hear rebuke. This week, um, Jennifer was doing a devotion uh, with the boys and, and kind of doing a few different things right now, but we, we're talking about Proverbs at breakfast time. And we're in Proverbs 17, whatever day of the month you can, like, if you don't know this trick about Proverbs, there's 31 Proverbs, and so if you're, you can read the Proverb of the day. By the way, that shouldn't be the only thing you read in the Bible, but it's a really good way to do it. And Man, especially Proverbs, uh, so many of them are written to young men. And so having an 11 and a 14-year-old, they're so applicable. And uh, on, on I, believe, I believe it was Friday, Proverbs 17, this is verse 10. It says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A man of understanding, it's going to go deep into him. He's going to look and he's going to handle that rebuke and he's probably going to make adjustments from it. He's going to, he's going to evaluate it to see, is this applicable to me? Do I, need to, do I need to hear this? But it's not going into a fool. A fool's got a better chance of getting beat a hundred times, taking a hundred licks, than he does handling a word of rebuke. Matter of fact, the Proverbs speak often about rebuke. Proverbs 13.1 says this, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Uh, Proverbs 27.5 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And so like, there's this comparison. Like, It is better to be rebuked and have this open rebuke given to you than it is for somebody to have a, a love hidden and so what you can like, take away from this is like if you really love somebody and you really care for them, you are going to speak a word of rebuke when it is needed. It is a father's love that leads him to discipline his children, isn't it? And what do we know from God, right? Isn't this true from God? Like it's God's love and kindness that he, he rebukes us, that he disciplines us. God, the Bible says, God disciplines those that he loves. So today, 
in our passage, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is going to give a rebuke to the Pharisees. Now, this is pretty common. But I want us to see this big truth in the text. I want us to see this, this big truth about God. And it's this. It is God's loving kindness that leads to repentance and faith in Him. It's God's loving kindness that He confronts us in our sin, that He rebukes us in our sin, and He calls us to a life of faith and obedience. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 16. We're in verses 14 through 18. This is sandwiched between two two passages, and, and, and we cannot separate these. So you've got the parable of the dishonest manager, and then you've got the rich man and Lazarus. Those are two stories surrounding this text. And so in verse 14 it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now when we read this passage, didn't verse 18 feel a little bit out of place? Here, here we are, this, this rebuke, we're talking about money. He's talking, he, he transitions to the law and the prophets, the word of God not passing away, and then he brings up this passage about divorce. And it seems out of place. Many of you, if you're looking in your, in your Bible, you'll see where the, the uh, publishers of your Bible probably put a, a little subheading in there, divorce and remarriage. And it seems as if it just stands alone. But now, when we uh, read the Bible, when we seek to interpret the Bible, this is often called hermeneutics. Uh, we can talk about that's the, the, uh, basically the science, the, the way, the rules in which we interpret Scripture. We can also talk about exegesis, the way that we look at Scripture, and we draw from it its meaning. We don't get to put our meaning onto Scripture. We get to talk about what's authorial intent. What did the author intend? What did Luke intend for us to get from this? There's three important rules. Those rules are, I'm going to see if my, my uh, servant leadership cohort knows these. It's, I'll give you the first one, context. What's the second one? And what's the third one? Context. That's our first three rules of interpreting Scripture, doing good biblical exegesis. Context, context, context. Context is everything. And so we have to look at the context of the immediate passage. Okay, so we're looking at the context of the immediate passage. We have this parable of the dishonest manager before it. We've got, we've got this uh, piece about the rich man and Lazarus behind it. We've He's been addressing the Pharisees' love of money, right? He's, he's been going after this. So that's the immediate context. We have the context of the whole book of Luke, right? We get to look at that context, its place in the Bible, but we also have to understand the historical 
context, right? There's multiple distances, uh, contextual distances to cover. And so this is, this is very important as we begin to start to tear this apart. So in the immediate context, we have to remember he has been addressing their love for money. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Here's my first big idea. We often ridicule, rebuke, rather than repent. Often, uh, us, like the Pharisees, when we are approached with some level of rebuke, we, our, our response is of one of ridicule. It's one of, of sharp dis, disapproval. Um, we have responses. Like my classic response is like I quickly put up my guards and say I know I am, but what are you? That's quickly, that's quickly where my little dark heart wants to go. I know I am, but what are you? I want to take and just throw up a deflector, right? I want to, that, that whole thing that you learned when you were a kid. I'm rubber, you're glue. Anybody else know that? I'm rubber, you're glue. What? Sticks to you. Thanks, James. Who taught you that? Oh, I did. I did. There you go. I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Like that's, that's like we put up our guards. Like we don't want to be confronted with our own failures, with our own problems. And so uh, we, we throw it up. Often, what happens in moments like this is the, the attack of someone else's character. Rather than examine our own character, we attack someone else's character. And so, man, we do the whole, man, you're, you're looking at the speck in my eye and you've got a log in your eye. Well, there's, there's true, that happens, right? But that's not the point in, in the, the moment. The, the point is going, okay. I need to examine myself. I need to look. This, could this be real? And the Pharisees, he's, he's called out their love of money. And because they love money. And remember, uh, he wasn't teaching. He was teaching to his disciples within, with the Pharisees listening. With the, uh, these religious people listening. And they find great offense at it. They have, they have it, it, when you read that, you think like you can almost feel their physical response of like... <laughs> Because it says, um, you know, they ridiculed him. It's, it's when, when, you, when, you, when you study, it's almost like there's like a hissing, like a, ah, come on. There's a, there's a physical response to it that probably happens. You know, sometimes when I'm preaching, uh, I can feel the ridicule. I can feel the disagreement. I remember the very first sermon I ever preached right here, our very first sermon. Uh, we're a brand new church. People didn't know much about us. This room was packed. Um, there were visitors, people I didn't know. And I start preaching and I start I, I, casting a vision for what we believe about the Word of God. And there's about three quarters of the way back on the right hand side, there's this whole row and they're going, ooh, ooh. And before long, they got up laughing, looking at each other, and they walked out, right? Uh, I could tell they, they were, there was a ridicule about what I was saying. Um, last Christmas Eve, I remember I, I said something about I brought up crystals and uh, so, some of the new age stuff that's invaded our, our culture. And I remember as I was talking about crystals, there were several people in the room that, that had that kind of response. of like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear what you have to say. 
But not only that, someone got online and, and like was ridiculing me, blasting me online over crystals. And I, th- I thought, like, I, did, you know, I didn't think that was a big deal. And all of a sudden, I found out that's a big deal to people. So guess what I started doing? Right? All right. I got to bring this up. If this is a, a cultural idol and it's affecting people in our church, I'm going to have to bring it up. Uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned sports betting. And I don't know that I had ever mentioned sports betting before. I saw it on some people's faces. Right? It made some people uncomfortable. And so, sports betting. Uh, <laughs> like, maybe you need to evaluate if that's a good stewardship of your time and, and money. Like, you're, th- think through it. So, I just want to, this is the, the first point, I don't want to get stuck here, is that we often ridicule rebuke rather than repent. Just think about David, King David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had Uriah killed, and as Samuel came and had a prophetic rebuke. What if his response was different than what it was? Psalm 51, you can read it. It, his, His response is written right there. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Right? That was the right response. Read Psalm 51. Read that story and go, no, this is how we ought to receive rebuke. Verse 15, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. So here's the next big idea. We try really hard to justify ourselves to the world around us. Now the Pharisees, they were excellent at this. The Pharisees, I mean... They were worried about their outward appearance. The way that they dressed. How literally, literally they took certain things about the, the law. From their garments to the frontlets. That, you like read in scripture and you'll see these things. And, and, and they went to these extremes to make sure that they had this outward appearance that looked good. Jesus actually called them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You remember he calls them out and goes, you bunch of whitewashed tombs. He's basically saying like, you're a tomb. You're like a casket, like we think in, in our terminology. You're a cast, casket that's really clean and really shiny on the outside, but you got a dead corpse on the inside. And so there was this level with the Pharisees that they put on, painted this picture for the out, outside world that they were uh, holy, that they were righteous, But as Jesus confronts them, what we see is the darkness of their hearts. Now, I'm afraid again that we often can so often be like the Pharisees, that we paint a picture to the world around us of what we're like when in reality it's not who we are behind closed doors. You know, one very easy definition of character is that you're the same in front of people. You're the same in public as you are in private. Like, that's, that's one defi- definition of character. And so, I think in the church especially, we can be pretty guilty of this. 
I think pastors can be really guilty of this. Pastors can really try to put themselves forward in a, in a certain light and put our kids forth and our wives forth in a certain light, and our homes could be a wreck. And by the way, like, you know, when I talk to a pastor's kid, like, there's two types of pastor's kids. There's kids that like, just cannot stand their parents and don't want anything to do with the church, and those that love their parents and want everything to do with the church. It's like there's no in-between. Well, what do you think the difference there is? It's like, it's what happens at home, and is it, is it real? And so, man, we've, we've always done this. As, as a broken, sinful humanity, we've always put forth, trying to justify to the world, justify to man, gain acceptance with man, we've put forward this, this picture of ourselves. But what has changed in recent years that makes that exponentially easier for us? The old social media. Right? And so all of a sudden, we can go and we can paint a picture to the world how just perfect and good our life is. We can just put it right up there. I'll never forget. When the first time I like really realized this was happening, I was with this young, young man and we were working on a project at this old church. And um, he, he's like, I'm up high working on something. It's working on the bell tower, believe it or not. And this thing's nasty up in there. And I'm up high, I'm working on it. He's like passing me tools. And I get down and he goes, hey, can I climb up there? And I climb up there and he goes, hey, will you take my picture? And I took his picture and he climbed right back down. And then he went on social media and made a post working on the bell tower at church. Like, dude, you didn't do, like, you made it seem like you were up there working and you weren't. And like, that's what we do, isn't it? Like, we, we stage pictures. Like, I always love it when, photo, you know, when people like get their family pictures made. And it's like this wonderful picture. And then you see the other picture like, but really this is what happened. The kids are screaming. The kids are crying. It's a mess. Like, that's a picture of what our lives are like. Oh, we've got it. You know, some of you, some of you are like trying to go on your Instagram and deleting your little church post you already made since you got here. Like, <laughs> like you already had that little post. You're like, I'm deleting it. Because it's what? It's a virtue signal, right? And when any cause comes up, you know, just go back to 2020. Go back to the coronavirus and, and, and Black Lives Matter and just watch the vir virtue signals that, that unfolded from that and that still are going on today. It's like, we, we see people like throwing blind support for Palestinians or blind support for Israel. You don't know anything about it. You know nothing. You've not read it. You've not studied it, but virtue signal. And so this has become who we are. We justify ourselves because what happens if we don't justify ourselves? We're scared of getting canceled. And so, man, this is, this is particularly interesting to, to, to us. Now, I want you to understand, the Pharisees lived in that world too. It just wasn't online. wasn't invented yet. Don't know if you knew that. Um, it just wasn't there. But they cared about their outward appearance. And so this is a danger. What often happens when we put forth this outward picture and it doesn't line up with what is inside of us, when the two things are conflicting, it puts us in, in, in a place uh, of feeling bad about ourselves, this, this place of, um, this feeling of hypocrisy. And I know we talk about hypocrisy, but nobody wants to be a hypocrite. No one's signing up, like, no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, I just want to be a hypocrite today. No one does that. And so as we see our own hypocrisy, it, it troubles us. It brings us to a place of, like, we either have to bring ourselves to a place of justification, 
or a place of change. Now, in the 50s, a pop psychologist uh, came up with this term called cognitive dissonance. So in the field of psychology, cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information and the mental toll of it. Um, The discomfort is, is triggered by the person's beliefs clashing with new information perceived wherein the individual tries to find a way to resolve the contradiction to reduce their discomfort, right? Straight off of some psychology website. Let me try to put that simply. The discomfort is felt when your beliefs don't line up with your actions. And this is what happens. This is how they say with cognitive dissonance, this is what happens. The next step is rationalization. We begin to rationalize things. So, when your actions and your beliefs don't line up, you've got two choices to make. You can either change your beliefs or you can change your actions. That's your two choices, right? You can change your beliefs or you can change your actions. So in our world, we have a ton of people who are in this phase that, we've, that we're now calling deconstruction. Deconstruction isn't new. This, this, what deconstruction describes is actually very old. And so because we're trying to justify ourselves to the world around us, our beliefs, so many of us, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe to be true, we've got a choice to make. We either change our actions, we repent. By the way, if you didn't remember the first part of the sermon, like that's the right thing to do, right? Or we change what it is that we believe. Now, deconstruction in the way that we see it in our society is often these subtle changes that lead to a total abandonment of the faith. It's typically not like somebody's all in one day and they wake up the next day and go, you know, I'm all out. It's slow, subtle changes. And what, the way that that often happens is by going to the word, God's Word, and we see things that it teaches, and we look at our actions, and we see where they don't align, and then we justify the changing of the Word of God, and going, that's not really what that means. The progressive left, uh, theological left, uh, was masterful, masterful at doing this in the 70s and 80s. It's a huge part of where the church ended up to, is, is at today. Uh, if you look at the mainline denominations that are on uh, really the verge of being no more, it started in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s of where they, their actions didn't line up with the Word of God, so they began to change their belief system. And they did it in order to win the approval of man. You could say this about any number of things. But in our world, when we think about the sexual revolution, right? And we think about um, the uh, legalization of gay marriage, the accept, exception, accepting of gay marriage in our society, we can easily look back not that long ago in our lives and realize that was not accepted, and then it began to be accepted, and so many Christians changed their belief about it to be accepted by the world. And once you accept one thing, guess what? You just have to keep accepting it, don't you? 
And so if you were against gay marriage 10 years ago, you were a bigot. But today, you can be accepting of gay marriage, but you have to accept every bit of the gender dysphoria or else you're a bigot. And so when you begin to justify yourself to the world around you, it, it is a place that is going to bring you to the, where you have to change your faith system. And if you're going to take the Bible seriously at all, that means you're going to have to reject the Bible. Here's my next big idea. We cannot justify ourselves to a just and holy God. This is what it says. But God knows your hearts. Like you can, you can throw up that virtue signal all you want. God knows what is real. I think one of the most incredible things about God is that he is all-knowing. That with every person on the planet, he knows their soul. He knows, he knows what is going on inside of you. And we can't go to God and justify the one who set the standard. He's just. He's righteous. He's holy. Everything he says is right and true. Everything he has is good for us. And so we often come to God rejecting the things that He says. We, we, we go to God in our actions and tell them that He is wrong and we cannot do that. He is a holy God. It says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In your mind, just think, in our culture, what are the things that might be exalted among men that are an abomination of the holy God? That's a long list, isn't it? And that's a list that is getting pushed at us and pushed at us and pushed at us. But listen, we cannot justify ourselves to a just and holy God. He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who sets the standard. We talk about Scripture, we call it, it was, it was known in the, the ancient Hebrew world is the canon or rule. We talk about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, literally means standard or rule. It is as if it is a measuring tape for our life. We don't get to change it. Verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Here's my next big idea is that the gospel is good news. Remove whatever barriers keep you from coming to it. So you have the law and the prophets. Let's, let's, let's just take verse 16 apart. You have the law and the prophets. The law, the Ten Commandments, and the other things that flowed out of that. The prophets. So who, the, the prophets were people who... Uh, prophesied, who proclaimed the law. And you see the Old Testament prophets, and you see the last prophet being John. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He was the last prophet. He was the last one who was saying, hey, he's here. Jesus calls him the greatest prophet. Why is he the greatest prophet? Because he is the one who got to announce the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ. And so you had the law and the prophets, and since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. Jesus is preaching this good news of the gospel, that the kingdom has come, that God loves us, that He's sent His Son 
right? He's, he's prophesying forward slowly but surely that he, Jesus is going to die for them. We, in, the, in, the, in post-resurrection Christians, get to look back and realize the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in the death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus. And then there's this little funny phrase, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, if you've been coming to church here long, you know that we believe that you cannot earn your own salvation. You cannot buy your own salvation. Uh, when you hear that term, you force your way into it. Matthew, by the way, uses some different language. He says, comes to it violently. You can't, you can't earn it. You can't buy it. How do you come to it? You come to it by faith. So what is Luke talking about? There's four theories of what he's talking about. I'm going to give you the one that I think is right. And that I, I, I want you to think about Zacchaeus. I think Zacchaeus is a great illustration of someone who forced their way into it, right? What do we know about Zacchaeus? Is that he's this short little man and the, Jesus is coming through the, the, the streets. And so what does Zacchaeus do? But he climbs up a sycamore tree like for the lord he wanted to see like there there's the song right and, and uh, imagine it's like i've got to get a view i've got to get a view and so he climbs the tree imagine um imagine little little kids like forcing their way through a crowd in order to get to it to be able to get to jesus imagine imagine the the leper who's coming to jesus to touch jesus the person who shouldn't touch anybody and they have to force their way through a crowd to touch it this is what this means. It's like you are trying everything. You're getting across every barrier, every obstacle to get to Jesus. Now, here, here is a, a subtle rebuke. Pharisees, you are an obstacle. People are having to force their way by you to get to Jesus. I think you can clearly see, like, man, imagine somebody who's uh, curious about Christianity, and they've started reading the Bible, and they 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 feel the Holy Spirit's uh, power in it, and they see uh, the truth in Scripture. But they look around at the people who call themselves Christian and go, "But wait a second, something doesn't add up." And so they have to hurdle over those barriers that are people. And so this is what I would say to you. Today, if you are in the room and you do not know Jesus, the gospel is good news. The gospel is this, that while we were sinners, that while we have rebelled against God, that God in His love and mercy sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, to reconcile us to God, that He who knew no sin... Jesus took on our sin that we might know God the Father. He was crucified on our behalf. We are the ones who deserved the punishment, the wrath of God, but Jesus took it on the cross for us. He was crucified. He was really dead. He was put into a grave, and God raised His Son uh, from life, proving that He was who He said He was on the third day. Whatever barriers may keep you from coming to the gospel, and think about the context of this passage, maybe it's money. 
Maybe it's who is your master? Do you want to serve Jesus as Lord or do you not? Maybe that is the barrier. Maybe it is a Pharisee in your life that is the barrier. Whatever that barrier may be, you need to blow past it and come to Christ. It's worth it. And so then he says this, verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Here's my next big idea. The Word of God is unchanging. It, it doesn't change. The, the law of the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of that law, but it didn't change the law. The law is, is the, the mirror of which we look at and we see that we can't keep it, that we can't hold it. Like the Ten Commandments. I'll just take us out real quick. Who in here has never told a lie? Raise your hand. All right, we broke it. We can't keep it. The gospel came. The gospel is good. There's not one word of God that is changing. And notice the language. It says, pass away for one dot of the law to become void. I, I don't know if many of you know much about Hebrew. I know Jed knows Hebrew. Hebrew's brutal. It's a brutal language to learn. And so the Hebrew alphabet, you've got your letters, but then your, your vowels come when you add these different little dots. And they're hard to see. And there's letters that look like the same letter. And I, my Hebrew class that I took, I think, you know, this is what I'll just tell you, C's get degrees, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, it was hard. Hebrew is a hard language, and there's all these little dots. And not one dot of the law will become void. Not one little iota can change the law. The word of God is unchanging. And let me tell you something. In our world where everything changes so fast, it is a, a place of rest and a place of joy to know that God's word does not change. And so then, let's talk about divorce. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery... And he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Doesn't this seem like a very big change of gear? Oh, it's not. Here's the big idea. We can't change God's word to justify our actions. Let me give you a detail that you need to know to understand this passage. The Bible spoke very clearly in the Old Testament about divorce. Jesus in the New Testament speaks very clearly about divorce. It, it, it says that uh, a man should uh, leave his mother and he shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That those two things should not be separated. And there's really but one real exception clause that we see Jesus teach in the New Testament and that is the, that of adultery. That of cheating on a spouse, the breaking of the marriage. Ethically, you, you can argue from God's word that physical abuse, that abuse is a, a way that breaks it. But the clear teaching is that, man, this is what breaks it. It is a, adultery. But the Pharisees, they have added letters to the law. They had changed the law. They had all these rules that they had written. You can, you can go and read the ancient Hebrew text, the different things, and you can see what they believed about divorce. And the Pharisees had made it nearly impossible for a woman to divorce her husband. 
But they had made it incredibly easy for a man to leave his wife. Like, if she burnt the bread, he could leave her. You never burn anything. That's smart. <laughs> I burn stuff, don't I, boys? And they're like, it's burnt. Sure do. Please don't leave me. Um, they had taken things. If he, if he saw another woman and said, oh, she's a 10. My wife's an 8. He could leave her. They had changed the law so that they could leave. They had changed the law so that they could divorce. And they divorced their wives. And so Jesus is showing them. He's been talking about money. He showed them like this money is a sin. Hey, but since you're being hard-headed, let me tell you about one other thing. And then he goes after, hey, you're divorcing your wives when you shouldn't. We can't change God's Word to justify our actions. They changed the Word. They changed God's Word. We don't get to do that. We don't get to. To go, to go back other, uh, up, to talk about our, our cognitive dissonance. When we go, and it's like we, have, we can either change our action or we can change our belief. We don't get to go and change what God's Word says to make it comfortable for us. We have to stand on truth. We don't get, it's just not, this is not a document. This is not a Google Doc that everybody gets to go in and edit. It's not how this works. Like We have to stand. And listen, what God has for us is what is good for us. One of the things that, that we learned in this passage, of, uh, this previous passage of Scripture is like what, what we believe about money, what our bank account and our calendar show us our priorities, where we spend our money, like it, it, it reveals to us our heart. Marriage also reveals to us our heart. Marriage is the thing that will sanctify you the fastest. Marriage is hard. Some of you who are single and you think like marriage is going to make you happy. Some of you are poor and you think money is going to make you happy. Right? That's what we believe. We believe those two things. Like if I could just be married, I'd be happy. If I could just have money, I'd be happy. Well, I can't prove the money part because I don't have a lot of it. But I can tell you like marriage in itself don't make you happy. Jesus is the one who makes you Jesus brings you joy. Marriage is hard. Marriage is good. Don't, let me, don't hear me being discouraged about marriage. Marriage is a blessing. It is a, a gift, right? But it is, it is hard. Just in the same way that, that God reveals to us our heart about money, so does marriage reveal to us our heart, right? It shows us where our priorities lie. And so here's my next big idea. is our response to God's Word reveals our heart's devotion. Our response to what God teaches reveals our heart's devotion. Are we devoted to our own happiness? Are we devoted to our own ideas? Are we devoted to our own uh, sinful lust and desires? Or are we devoted to God the Father? By His Son, Jesus Christ. Where does our devotion lie? You've got a choice when you're rebuked, right? When you look in the mirror, the law, the, uh, in Romans, we see Paul talk about the law being a mirror. When we look at God's Word, and it's like a mirror to us, and we look at it, and we say, you know what? 
here are the places in our life where there is hypocrisy. These two things don't match. What, what's on the inside doesn't match what's on the outside. Like you have two responses. The right response is repentance. The right response is change, right? Our response to God's word, it ought to be, if you're devoted, if you're devoted to following Christ, it ought to be repentance. And so today, like, I don't know where this hits you. This hits everybody in this room differently. Everybody in here has got something in their heart that's not holy. They've got something that they're trying to justify to the outside world. You've got something that you're trying to justify to God, but you can't justify yourself to a just and holy God. So what do you do? But you throw yourself at God. You cry out, Father, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need to repent. Father, help me to turn from the things of the world and turn my life towards you. Evaluate this morning. What's in your heart? One of my favorite Proverbs. I started with a proverb. I'll end with a proverb. It's Proverbs 27, 19. As in water reflects a man's face, so the heart of the man reflects the man. Communion we're going to take today is meant to make us reflect. There's two ordinances of the church. One is baptism. Baptism is how we tell the world where we, we follow Christ. It's how we tell the world that we are followers of Christ. We've died to ourselves. We've been raised to walk in a new way of life. Hey world, I'm following Jesus. I've removed the barriers. I've forced my way into it. I'm following Jesus. Communion is how we remember Christ and how we reflect in what brings us to a place of repentance. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And then he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so, this is a place where we examine ourselves. That we repent. What, what in our lives is unholy? What are we trying to justify to man? What do we need to lay out before God to repent? So, I'm going to ask the band to, to come up and, and to lead us in a song of response. And as we start singing, I, I want you, you don't necessarily have to sing. Maybe you get down on your hands and knees and pray. Maybe you cry out to God standing there. Maybe you remain seated. Whatever, however you'd like to express yourself to God, express to yourself to God, God, this is who I am. Be right and real with God. He knows your heart. You can't hide anything from Him. And so, cry out to God. In this moment, reflect. Evaluate your life. Evaluate what is going on with your life. Where you are with God. And don't, don't just like make the... Make the, 
the justification, the, the uh, rationalization, but rather repent. Let's get right with the Lord this morning. So, Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. Lord, may we read it and heed it. May we live by it. May we get our hearts right with you this morning. May we take your word of God serious. and May we not just read it, but also heed it. And so, Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you feel led, come up and take a cup. I want you to take a cup and go back to your seat like we kind of use the center aisle and funnel down and go back around the side to get back to your seat. But I want you to, when you get to your seat, go ahead and open it up and take this little piece of bread, this unleavened bread that symbolizes Jesus' body and put it between your teeth and crush it as His body was put on the cross for our sin. And then go ahead and peel back the other side and wait and together we will drink of the cup together. Let's, let's respond.